So welcome to episode 3.1 of the Daz and Daz NBA podcast. I say episode 3.1 because we've had to make this episode into a two-parter uh, because we quite a way into the episode got into the situation at the Bucks with Jabari Parker being injured and uh, that led to Darren going on for probably an extra half an hour from what we expected. So we've had to split this into a two-part podcast just to make sure that we could get everything in so the first part is really talking about the the trade that happened between Denver and Portland we break that down for a little bit and then we talk about some of the sleepers in the NBA sleeper contenders and we also touch on Kevin Durant's psychology so hopefully you can enjoy part one and then download part two as well where we break down the Milwaukee Bucks and Minnesota Timberwolves and where they should go from here episode of the Daz and Daz podcast. I'm joined once again by Darren Hill. How are you, Darren? Hi, mate. Good. It's episode three, EP.03. That's right, episode three. And what so much has happened in the week. The NBA is like no other sport in that sense, I think. So much can happen from week to week where the the narrative of certain teams, which we'll talk about in a second, uh, can change so much just from one week to the next. Crazy week, yeah, and it's usually the dog days of the NBA, right, leading up to the All-Star break, and the guys, you know, are, you know, they're making travel plans to be on what, on a banana boat or something, so it's, yeah, strange things happen before the All-Star break, not to mention the you know, trade deadline stuff heating up. That's right, well, with the trade deadline, of course, last week I said the first domino would fall, and I didn't know how pathetic that would be, mm-hmm. because... Of course, Miles Plumley gets traded last week, and then today Mason Plumley gets traded. Mason Plumley and uh, what was a second round pick for Nurkic and a first round pick, which is Memphis's first round pick for next year. So it'll probably be around the twenty mark, mid twenties maybe, um, going back to Portland. I didn't want to talk about the Portland side as much as the Nuggets side of this because I went from looking at this trade first of all and just thinking this is a horrible trade for Denver. What are they doing? And then I looked a bit deeper and, and read a few reports about it, and it actually became a fascinating trade for me. I'm still not convinced it's a great trade, but I just looked at it and I didn't realise that Mason Plumley is actually the third best centre in the league in terms of assists. And Jokic, who's their power forward, who he's now playing with, he's the third best passer in the league for power forwards. So Denver all of a sudden have the best front court in the league in terms of passing, in terms of assists. And I thought, and I wanted to throw the question to you, is this potentially a way to build a, a contending team in today's NBA to have the two best passing big men in the league, potentially, or certainly the two best as a tandem, and then surround them with shooters? You've got Jamal Murray, you've got uh, Gary Harris. I mean, Moody is a bit of a disaster at the moment, but... but I'm sure they can look at the point guard position going forward. But, I mean, do you feel like that's a potential way of contending in today's NBA um, and that there's real value around having big men that can pass? I mean, there's always value around having big men that can pass, but is it more relevant in today's pace and space era of the league than what it might have been four or five years ago? So without boring 
dragging into a boring X's and O's conversation. Um, uh, it's interesting. I actually didn't know that um, about Plumlee's passing. That makes a lot. That actually makes the trade make a lot more sense now, doesn't it? Where I think the initial reactions were a uh, a WTF? Are you doing Denver? That's exactly um, but, right. Yeah. But now you've now that you mentioned, I think the um, I'm thinking who does it well. I know that's where um, the Bucks were trying to go with Greg Monroe, who actually is quite a good passer. Um, and they play this. The Bucks play an elbow, an elbow game where they dump the ball into Monroe at about 15 to 18 feet out, and then just and they the Bucks have led the league, led the league last year, and they're probably up there again this year. I haven't checked in a while, but in points off cutting, right? And so and Monroe is a big part of that. So he's what I don't know seven assists per. Now someone's gonna gonna Google me and make me look like an idiot, but he has really good assists per 36 numbers, really good at you know catching cutters. In a coming back door, and so what that does is the threat of the cuts then is what allows the few shooters Milwaukee has, the Toledovic um, and, and Brogdon, etc., to have more space. So, therefore, I, I think that's is an astute play on Denver's part, where if you've got um, um, we've got Plums now feeling whatever twenty to twenty five minutes off the bench, what a what a weapon off the bench, to be fair. And their offense can basically not miss a beat, which is pretty unusual. I'd have to think about how many teams can have, you know, go to a bench and basically have almost an identical skill set, you know, to a starter. So once I got my head wrapped around it, I think, yes, with a team that's not blessed the way the Cavs or the Rockets or the Warriors are with shooters at every position, I think that's a really clever way to play inside out and to both have a cut game with the athletes that Denver has as well as they can put their shooters out on the side so I'm I'm warming to it as I got my head wrapped around it yeah I think with, with a team like Denver they're not a free agent destination so you don't think of them in that sense so you've got to be a bit creative in terms of how you build a team and we saw with Furious George was there they had uh, the well, they were real just about pace. It wasn't so much space. It was just about playing at that fast pace uh, in the altitude in Denver. And of course, they had very good success while he was there playing that sort of style, and for even for a few years beyond. Yeah. That. So I think now they're sort of thinking outside the square in a sense and saying, how can we build a a team that can contend without getting necessarily getting a superstar unless we nail one in the draft? And I think Jokic is going to be a very very nice player going forward it's, it's going to be interesting to see what his ceiling is uh, but from that point of view you look at it now and they've got Plumley, they've got Jokic uh, you still got Gallinari who I like um, and, uh, but I'm also interested whether they're open for business now with other trades so is Wilson Chandler going to be on the move he's he's indicated he might want to move on um, is Kenneth Fareed going to now come into trade talks as well because this year a little bit redundant um, if you've got Plumley on board also uh, but they've got some nice shooters to surround those really nice passes and Gallo's a nice passer as well a nice playmaker in the front court so now you can go, have a real true inside outside game with these guys uh, and if you can see Gary Harris and Will Barton and guys like this continuing to shoot well, uh, I can see them. I mean, they're in the eighth spot now for the playoffs, so I could certainly see them making the playoffs this year. But whether they're able to build on that going forward, 
I think is going to be the interesting thing uh, for them in the next sort of three or four years. Is this how they're going to? Is this going to be the centerpiece? Because Plumlee's only twenty-four, I think, as well. So, is this going to be the centerpieces of a contending team going forward? Well, this is going to be a theme. I think we mentioned it. Oh, I think at the last one or the our first pod, but it's that question of when we thought about Tibbs in Minnesota, and um, again, kid with the box is what seems to be happening in Denver is they're building a style of play around their talent rather than a hard and fast, um, you know, Derek Fisher bringing the triangle or. You know the kid bringing his his absolute swarming, you know, style of play. Yeah. Um, I think what that's my read is it's going to be interesting to see Malone adapt this team to a style of play that suits their talent, rather than say, oh, here's a style that we think can beat, you know, the top teams in the West the next five years, and you know, instituting a system. That's what I see happening, which will be fascinating because they they don't play much defense, and getting a Plumley who's a a great athlete and a good passer. He's not that interested in defense. No. Jokic isn't that interested in defense. And I go, you would have thought, right, the the logic would contend, well, get Jokic a rim protector. Can they get a, a Nerlens Noel, right, to complement, you know, at the five position? And they're basically saying, stuff it. We've got athletes. We've got a glut of wings. We're young. We like to run. And we've got some shooters. Well, let's make sure our bench keeps – Keeps doing what our our front um, our starters can do. So, that's in, I think it's just really interesting. I'm, I I like what Denver's doing. Yeah, and I, th- and I think to touch on my earlier point with Chandler and Farid, I think they now become a very interesting trade deadline player because I can't see Farid, even though they love him in Denver, I'm not sure he's going to stay there now. And he's been a player that I've been touting for the Boston Celtics to go after for some time because I think he could be that one piece that they need because their biggest weakness is rebounding. And I, I watched them, uh, I think, yesterday against Utah, and they just easily beat Utah in Utah. So they're playing some really good basketball. Now, they're not that far behind Cleveland for the one seed in the East, and Cleveland aren't exactly setting the world on fire either. So Boston might just sort of think, well, we might be a sneaky chance here to... Um, you know, I can't say them beating the Warriors by any stretch, but I think they could they could challenge the Cavs if they get a Farid in there, I'm, I'm a bit... Farid might be one of them players with me. Whenever I watch Denver, he seems to play well. And then when you're just looking at the box score and you haven't watched the game, he, he doesn't put up many many stats or something. And you think, how, I don't really understand how that works. But uh, I think he could, if he went on a contending team like the Celtics, I could see him having a big impact. But I'm interested in your thoughts on Farid uh, and the fit he may be with a team like Boston. I have... And we didn't talk about this beforehand, which is why I'm fascinated you're bringing it up. I have an irrational love of Kenneth Fareed. I, perhaps like you, I go, every time I see him play, is like his hair is on fire. He's everywhere. He feels like a more athletic Draymond Green when he's in the game, right? It's not the facilitator that Draymond is, but he's everywhere on D. He's the heart and soul of the team. He has a two or three highlights per game, and I... I also dream about, and I'm very active on Brew Hoop, which is the kind of the Bucks, um, the Bucks form of obsessive fans. And I've been promoting a how might we get a Kenneth Fareed to pair with Giannis because I like the complementary thing. Imagine Giannis's finesse 
and his way of getting to the hoop. He's the, the giant gazelle, you know, with the Tasmanian devil of Fareed. And I go, what a freaking awesome front court. Um, but similarly, I could see him having just watched the Knicks and Spurs today. I see, boy, the Knicks could use a Fareed. You know, when the Knicks are playing well and Melville's on his game and Porzingis is doing his thing and Willie Herman Gomez is kind of, you know, sl- slithering around the court, I go, man, they gave up 17 offensive boards or something. You just need a someone to clean it up. And I think you're – so the long, long way to get to your question, Daz, is absolutely I could see that with the Horford and the Olenix and, the, again, the softer, more finesse, you know, skilled – skilled four-stroke fives that they have. Um, if they could find a way to get Fareed without giving up Jay Crowder, I go, that would be very interesting. Because now you've got someone who can who can battle Tristan. I have I also have an irrational kind of an um, rational irrational. I narrow in on Tristan because he was so effective in last year's playoffs. You know, you see him trudging along for 80 games at nine points and nine rebounds, but man when you when you need a rebound or an offensive set, Tristan's a guy, and I think a Fareed could be a a bit of a neutralizer. So, um, I, I think they could get him too. I, I don't think it would take because he's on a pretty big contract. So Denver might be looking to shed some some money on that side of things as well. So you think he's going to be a couple of first round, sorry, second rounders, uh, and you know you maybe you throw in Amir Johnson, who's like a poor man's uh, Fareed anyway. Uh, something like that. I, I think as as the deadline gets closer, I just think the price might go down a little bit for Fareed uh, as well. So, uh, what does Denver need? Sorry, what what does Denver need? Well, they'd probably I don't know. I mean, they'd probably like picks. They'd love a point guard. Um, yeah, but Celtics. I mean, they've got they've got a couple of point guards. Maybe they throw in Rozier. <coughs> Uh, depending on what your thoughts are on him, I've been seeing a lot of well, play. I'm just like so. I think for I think it'd be great. We can easily build some arguments about how Fareed can fit a lot of places, right? He'll toughen up just about every team that he goes to. Um, but I go well if he's 27, 27, yeah, 27. He's signed to a reasonable contract. It's I don't know, 12 or 13 million a year for. I think he's signed through 19. So he's got you know two more seasons after this one, and I go. Doesn't that sound like the ideal player? You know, to kind of again to complement the the centers they now have. And so I go. What if they're going to give up for Reed? What is it they're looking for? Is it just youth? Are they just trying to you know find teenagers? I don't know. Well, that's the thing, and then he is a fan favourite there, and you can understand why. So, it's I think that's going to be one of the things. How, what is the fit going to be like now with Plumley and Jokic there? Uh, yeah. Is Fareed going to be the right player to mix with them, or is it going to be a little redundant? And you a bit like Philly are struggling to find minutes for Fareed in there while you're trying to play these other two big guys. Because in today's NBA, you can only play a certain amount of minutes with two big guys on the floor, no Look how skilled they are. That's right. Well, I think that's the big, that was probably the big question. Maybe that's what you're saying that I had with getting Plumley is that you can't really play um, Plumlich, Plumley and Jokic together, right? You well, can't play them. Maybe on... they think they can. Maybe they think they can. I mean, I don't know how it's going to work on the defensive end, but 
Well, Maybe even I think it, they can get away with it for twenty minutes a night. I'm not sure. Well, I was going to say. Well, isn't I thought Farid was playing his best ball when he was small ball five. I thought when he's you got Farid at the small ball five, and you've got you know the Gallows and the Chandlers and Barton Harris and Moutier running around. I thought what you know what a, the ultimate sort of you know Denver death lineup. And so now they've got Farid. Now they've got two centers. You have to play. 25, 30 minutes a game. Fareed now has to be a four. But imagine him next to those two centers who don't shoot. Now you've got Fareed in the center who don't shoot. Mm. So I kind of go, I'm talking myself into maybe he fits perfectly defensively. But man, on the offensive side, that's a that's now that's now got the opposite of, of space. You got stuff clogging up there. Because now they're well, I guess Jokic has got a bit of an outside game, doesn't he? To be fair, he does. Yeah, yeah, he doesn't. So you really can yeah. play him and Plumley together. Be very that's good. that's it. Yeah. So yeah. that's why, and I think him and Horford on the on the Celtics, perfect, perfect fit. For my I just, I, I'm just, I don't want anything good to happen to the Celtics <laughs> after the fucking Patriots, man. I'm so tired of the Boston Red Sox and the curse and. Tom Brady with the easiest schedule in the NFL every year. Oh, can the Celtics suck for a while? Well, they're Just not them... going to. They're going to have something. They're going to have number one pick next year anyway, by the looks of things, or certainly top three pick. So Stinking Prokhorov giving him uh, 51 first-round draft picks. <laughs> So I think that, and I think they could look anyone but the Cavs for me in the East. So if it has to be the Celtics, so be it. So if they can make a play for for Farid, and look personally, I'd probably look at giving up a, a future first rounder if you could put the sufficient protections on it. Um, you know, top ten protected first round draft pick uh, for Farid, I could I could live with that because it, it could push you into being the contender this year. And who knows? It's only an injury away from going state. And we talked about Draymond last week getting injured, and then the whole league is completely open with, and that that probably leads us to the next thing that we wanted to talk about with the sleepers of the NBA, and because obviously, look, I don't know if you agree with this, and, and we'll talk a little bit more about the Warriors later. I, I don't think if they stay healthy, I don't think anyone beats them this year. But injuries happen. Ask the Clippers; they can happen every year, happen to any team, any player. If Draymond goes down, one of our other top players go down. I think it's wide open for any number of teams to come in uh, and win the, win the title. And one, there's a couple of teams I know we both wanted to talk about. One team I wanted to talk about from the West, first of all, was the Memphis Grizzlies, who just seem to, every single year, come out and just remain relevant, remain uh, one of the teams in the conversation. I did not see them being one of the top teams this year. And they're still right up there. They're still going as well uh, as can be expected. I think, what are they, number four in the West at the moment? I'm just bringing up the standings now. Yeah, they're 10 games over 500. That's right. So they're just behind Utah still, but they're 33 and 23. So they're essentially equal with Utah and the Clippers in terms of the wins column. Uh, A little bit ahead of uh, OKC. Uh, And they're just... They are a well-managed team. Uh, I really like uh, Fizdale, the coach. I think uh, you look at what Mike Conley's doing, Marcus Sale's having another great year. But I'm interested in your thoughts again. Like what, 
where do you what's what's the ceiling for this team? I guess could they make the conference finals, and if something happened to Golden State, could they be contender? Do you think, or is or are they just sort of overachieving just on good coaching and, and good organisation uh, across the board? Well, I think it's the the youth of Vince Carter and Zach Randolph. <laughs> I think it's just the my God, you have two granddads literally playing. Um, they're not the youngest team, are they? In fact, they're probably literally the oldest team, so, which is part, partially my answer, where I say um, I didn't think anyone could beat the Warriors last year, 73-9. and nine. No one thought – no one thought. The Cleveland didn't think they could beat the Warriors no. last year. Nobody did, and including LeBron. So under the headline of anything's possible, but I just don't see where offense would come from in the playoffs, right? When, when a team like Houston or – or Golden State goes on a run and, you know, has a 11-0 run in, in 90 seconds. It'd it take Memphis seven and a half minutes to score 11 points, right? I mean, they're efficient, but that's where I I think they would have to play such flawless, flawless basketball in the playoffs to have a to have an, um, have a real chance, to be honest. I just don't know where offense comes from, Taz. Yeah, look, I, I thought that as well, but they seem to just get it some nights and maybe it's just in the regular season these things are, are easier easier to get but uh, Jermichael Green the guy they got from uh, the Spurs D-League team uh, he's been really good for them um, we know what and then Zebo can come off the bench and, and score some points I guess it's going to be on the defensive end that they're going to get it done and just hope that they can make these games a bit of a grind uh, and, and hit a few shots down the other end uh, but I just, I guess I just like the way they go about things as an organisation and the fact that they're always there, always contending. And uh, I just, I look around the Western Conference and I think, well, I, I, I could see them beating, I couldn't see them beating the Warriors, as I said, but I could see them giving Houston some problems, certainly see them giving the Spurs some problems. I think Mike Conley's maybe the most underrated player in the NBA. And you know, with Gasol there as well, they've they've got two star star players. Uh, but I, I do agree. I think on the offensive end is where the questions are going to come. And until you see some of these guys do it in the playoffs, um, it's it's hard to sort of see them going over the top um, and continuing to push. Um, push Look, I, I you follow, you know them much better, right? Because of the proximity to the Spurs and in the West. So I look at Memphis and I say it's impossible not to respect a team like the Grizz. It's impossible, right? Because for so how do you not how do you not not like the Grizz, right? Um, but there's nothing sexy, right? They don't play a true space and pace brand of basketball. Um, again, Zach Randolph and Vince Carter play you know 50 minutes a game combined. Right, Tony Douglas, I think, still gets a gets a good run. Tony Allen gets a good run. Right, they got dinosaurs, but um, but it's impossible not to respect them. I just they seem just the numbers don't add up. If you just look at the just look at something, it's an imperfect number, but look at the PERs. They literally have what two players, you know, Gasol and Conley, who are above league average. Well, Zach Randolph's got a nineteen, but Three of their players have a league average PER. Everyone else is below 15. And I go, how is that? How is it they have five guys who get 
12 minutes a night and their PERs are under eight. How, what? How does that happen? Well, their numbers don't match their record. I mean, they, they don't. They've, had, yeah. they've won a lot of close games, which is, is in some ways isn't sustainable. But in some ways you might argue, well, it shows that they've, they've got veteran leadership down the stretch in games and they can win close games. Um, so, uh, and I, I'll, I'll always back Mike Conley. I think he's one of the, if you want to go the war with a guy as your point guard, uh, he's right up there for me in terms of, I mean, I've seen him have some great battles with the Spurs over the years. So he, he's a guy that I just think is perennially underrated. Uh, and, and Memphis just keeps sliding and everyone just assumes that they're going to go away You're right. in playoff time. But I think there's some warts on some of these other teams that and, and they're well-placed to take advantage of that. Um, particularly with Gasol, who I think is the most skilled big man in the league. And in a league where they're not putting as much of a premium on, on skilled big men, and we talked about Denver and, and them going in that direction, I think he could be a difference maker and certainly a point of difference um, from teams in the uh, in the Western Conference. Nobody wants to play them, right? Because they play defense. And so I think that's part of the... That's part of the allure of Memphis in the playoffs, where I, I also find myself wanting to fast forward teams like the Grizz to to make it the first of May, you know, when, when it gets really interesting, because they're not, you know, they're not winning any contests for, um, you know, for sexiness. Well, they're probably going to play. Well, I mean, we're fast forwarding quite a bit to suggest they may play Utah in the the first round. But if that would be the case, that's going to be an amazing defensive struggle. That'll be back to the uh, the Nets-Pistons games of the early 2000s, potentially, in terms of uh, of what it might be. But for a purist like me, I don't mind seeing two defensive teams go at it and see who can who can sort it out. No, I, I, I just on Mike Conley as well, I, I can't believe you're right. He's, he's shooting. I didn't see this till just now. He's shooting 41% from three. That's ridiculous. So to be the distributor that he is, he's now hitting 40%, 41% from downtown. You know, dang. Maybe I ought to start paying Maybe I ought to start paying attention. Yeah, well, I've been paying attention. I mean, look, he's the, he's the highest paid player in the NBA, and people sort of make jokes about that. But obviously that was just a, a, a feature of him coming into a free agent when the CBA changes were made the way they were. So yeah. that's not going to be something that lasts. But um, Memphis, uh, you know, you're not going to pay him that much money. They, they, I think Memphis understand better than anyone just how good this guy is yeah. and how much he's he's provided to the team. Um, and, and another team I think you wanted to talk about, we both wanted to talk about, we touched them last week. They did win 13 games straight. And I watched them uh, yesterday lose for the first time in 14 games. They lost to Philadelphia. It was the Miami Heat. And, I mean, the Philly loss, I think you just scratched that. That was just a game where they ran out of gas. They didn't just couldn't quite get up for the game at any stage. And they still made the game, but late. I think it was a late um, couple of nice plays from TJ McConnell, of all players, that uh, really put them out of it. But, uh, Did you seriously watch Heat versus 76ers? I was watching the game. I was watching the Warriors OKC game, which yeah. wasn't the 
greatest game in terms of how close it was. Obviously a high standard game, but uh, what I generally do is just flick on NBA TV between any games that get close. Yeah. And Miami were just keeping it close enough just to... So I kept flicking over to that game. And so I ended up watching quite a bit of it because it was really the only even reasonably close game in yesterday's slate of games. There was just no close games whatsoever. They were all blowouts. And I, I could see Miami just coming back, but Spo kept trying to call timeouts and kept trying to pick him up, and they just couldn't. They just couldn't get going. I mean, the Whiteside looked like he was in an absolute daze. Uh, Noel just really made him look slow, which is amazing when you consider what Whiteside can do. And but that must be the frustration for Miami to see him put in performances like that. So I do want to shower some love on the Heat. So that's fair enough. When you think about right, all the off-season chatter was around Orlando and how they're going to use Gordon and the potential with you know a big V in an Ibaka front court and will Hazonia develop and they've got you know Alfred and a bunch of point guards and wings etc. I go, how the heck are the Miami Heat you know whatever four or five games ahead of Orlando in the standings? When you look at the Heat roster, it's Goron, the second coming of Moses Malone and Hassan Whiteside, except without the intensity. He does disappear, which makes you want to just punch him in the neck sometimes. But I go, so you look at that team play, and I watched them play the Bucks a few days ago. That was one of their 13 in a row. It just demolition, just, it was men versus boys. Mm. And you, and, and I can't help but conclude it must be coaching. And I don't often run to that space because talent beats coaching, you know, nine times out of 10, but they play a sign of vanilla kind of offense. It's just a bit of motion, you know, a bit of spacing. They don't really run in transition. You know, they don't really just pound it down to Hassan. He's not really an offensive. He is at times, but he's not, you know, a guy you run an offense through. It's usually Goron just trying to, you know, drive and dish. And defense is pretty straightforward. Just this vanilla basketball, but so well executed by a bunch of nobodies. And so the love for the Heat is probably on Coach Spo, where I go, what is he doing, right, to get this team who was on paper a pile of hot garbage? And here they are, right, whatever, 12 or 13 in a row. So I don't know. You, you've been at a – you kind of watch Coach Spo from from afar, is it? Oh, I love. Is I that what you're Spo, seeing? Yeah, I, I think he's. If you talk about Mike Conley being underrated, I think this guy's really underrated as a coach. Uh, I saw what he did with that Miami team and the, and the defense that he built with that team, and he, but he's they're, they're not playing the same basketball now, so it's not like he's running a system. No, he's coaching around the talent that he has. And it's not much talent, that's for sure and certain. But he gets the best out of every single player on that roster. You know, I mean, just think about this for a moment. This guy won, well, was coach of a team that went to four straight finals. Now, I know he had LeBron, and I know he had Dwayne Wade. And that. Mario Chalmers was their point guard. Now, LeBron wants to sit there and whinge about, oh, I don't have a playmaker in Cleveland. Oh, my goodness, come and help me. They had Mario Chalmers was playing point guard there. They never had a centre. The entire time that he was there, never had a decent centre. Uh, their bench was just a disaster, except for Ray Allen. 
um, and even Ray Allen, you'd probably get 10, 15 good minutes out of him. So what he was able to do with that team and the basketball they were able to play in that in that three-year period, particularly the, the, when they beat OKC and then the, the, two, the loss to the Spurs and the, the unbelievable victory over the Spurs in the middle year was just phenomenal. And people, I think, expected, obviously, once... You know, to think that this team's still as relevant as they are, just going on a 13-game win, win streak. No LeBron, no Wade, no Bosch. Completely new roster. And he's just rebuilt it, and they haven't tanked, they haven't gone in and gotten a high draft pick or anything like that. Well, when I look at the the Heat box score, and I read you the names, I, I'm pretty sure you think I'm reading a box score from 1897, <laughs> right? L... Babbitt, R. McGruder, J. Johnson, O. White, W. Reed. (laughs) I will, I will eat my, I will eat this bottle of beer, including the bottle. If you can name the first names of all those gentlemen I just read off, I go. They are not. They are Brooklyn Nets bad, right? Honest to God, they are Brooklyn Nets level of talent. And I go, I don't even know who coaches the effing Nets. Who coaches the Nets? Why am I blanking uh, on this? The guy from yeah. Atlanta. Um, oh, one of Bud's. Yeah, it's a Bud boy, isn't it? Yeah. Well, he's got. He's no Coach Spo. That's that's the point I'm making. I go, when L. Babbitt and R. McGruder, you know, are logging, they logged 56 minutes in the game against the Bucks combined, and they scored, you know, L. Babbitt literally was 0 for 6 and had zero points and played 22 minutes, they beat the Bucks by 18. And I go, that's how good, that's how well that they're, that team is run that's, by. That's Luke Babbitt, by the way. I know. Yeah, I know, but it's it's L. Babbitt <laughs> when you read that. <laughs> and it's Kenny Atkinson. I just looked it up. Apologies to Kenny Atkinson uh, yeah. from the Nets. But uh, the Nets Kenny are Atkinson pretty thinks. irrelevant. He's got to yeah. understand yeah. that at this point. But, uh, I mean, to get even Whiteside, I mean, Whiteside, he just, as I said, he just gets the best out of the guys. James Johnson's a guy you mentioned. He's been around. Tyler Johnson. Tyler Johnson could easily be running around the D League. He just, for whatever reason, he gets the best out of out of every single player. Freaks me out. Yeah, it's and, it's a bit freaky. Yeah, and I don't think he's a great X's and O's coach either. I think he's a good defensive coach, but I think just as a, as a man manager, he just gets the best out of every coach. And I think there's value to that. Um, in, in, in NBA coaching, in any form of coaching. But I think in, t- in particular in NBA coaching, if you can get the best out of every player, um, the, I think they still need some work on offense. And I think they've, they got by in the years when they had LeBron and just the brilliance of LeBron. Obviously, Wade was still fantastic as well on the offensive end. He's never been a great offensive-minded coach, but he's been a very good defensive coach. And uh, as I say, he's always gotten the most out of his roster. Um Whenever, whenever he's wherever they've gone and whatever the roster's been, uh, another guy I think's who's talk about underrated coaches, a guy that I'll always go in the bat for is uh, Scotty Brooks, and I know you wanted to talk about the Wiz as well, but when when they hired Scott Brooks in the offseason, I thought that is a massive massive upgrade over Randy Whitman, and I don't think people really understood because a lot of people wrote Scotty Brooks off. Wait wait wait. People understood how much I think the French say retard, how much of a retard Randy Whitman was. So, to be fair, 
But anyway, continue. Yep. So with Scotty Brooks, I think a lot of people wrote him off because I oh, played Kendrick Perkins for five minutes at the start of every game in the finals um, when they lost to the Heat. And it was like people forget the fact that James Harden no-showed the entire series. Uh, I think their plus-minus with Perk out there wasn't that terrible. Um, it, it certainly that wasn't the reason they lost the series. And they were in every game. It was just one of those series where it was Miami's time. They were a little bit more seasoned, and they got over the top. And then the guy just had awful luck. Every single year they traded James Harden away for a pile of magic beans, essentially. Although Stephen Adams has been nice pick up out of that uh, and then the team just had injury after injury and just bad luck terrible losses here and there you know lost a couple of real heartbreaking games to the Spurs in the Spurs title year and last year the Golden State so oh sorry he wasn't there last year but and I thought that was what made me think about last year was what difference has Billy Donovan done or did at OKC last year and even this year that Scotty Brooks wouldn't have done I, and, and people were raving about Billy Donovan last year and I thought well, what's he done that Scott Brooks wouldn't have done I mean the only difference is Billy Donovan had a fit team that never got injured and when Scott Brooks was there they got injured but getting back to the Wizards and, and what he's done there, yeah. I think I think they're uh, you talk about sleepers in the East I think they're one of the top sleepers uh, running around the East at the moment well this is the is it going to be a thread for us? And when I, when we have Jeff Van Gundy on, he can help clear this up for us. You know, the, the dark art of coaching and how do you, you know, is it talent, is it coaching, and, and the blend of it and how that ebbs and flows from year to year and system versus culture, et cetera. But you've, you've answered your question in – you've sort of answered it in your question because when I think about the Wiz and I watched them play a couple times this week, they're perfectly healthy. Bradley Beal, right, was meant to have, you know, glass knees and fragile ankles and, you know, plantar fascia held together with rubber bands, and here he is playing. You know, it's some, I think he had some uh, minutes limited early in the season, but he's playing lights out, right? John Wall, perfectly healthy and back. He, I think he's lost a bit of weight and got some zip back. And so Scotty Brooks has got himself a, a healthy teammate, but I – so uh, – well, I think of the Wiz. I think if I grew up on Jupiter and landed in on planet Earth and discovered this thing with these men running around doing crazy things, and you watch the Wizards play, they play what seems like classic and when it works, almost perfect professional National Basketball Association basketball. They've got the quintessentially lightning quick, generous but can score John Wall. They've got the guy who shoot from 39 feet, Bradley Beal. They've got the wings, um, Otto and Markeith, who can do everything, and Otto is doing everything this year. That guy has taken, if Giannis weren't Giannis, this is a guy for most improved in my book. Mm. That's a different conversation. And you've got Harvey one. Marcin, Marcin, you got Gortat in the middle, you know, the terrifying Ivan Drago in the center, yeah. you know, just sweating on people and grabbing every rebound. And they go, they have the almost textbook perfect 
one, two, three, four, five starting lineup, and they're perfectly healthy. And so, I don't know about Scotty Brooks. If Scotty Brooks can't make that team win, then I would say Scotty Brooks is a major problem. But they are winning, and man, they're fun to watch, Daz. They're well, really just, fun to watch. As you say, it's a prototypical team. So it's the pro. What do you want in the point guard? Well, you want a guy that can share the ball around, get people involved, can score when he needs to score, knows when the, when I need to take over a game. That's John Wall. What do you want in the shooting guard? You want a guy that can make open shots, can attack the, the basket off the dribble. There's Bradley Beal. As you say, with your power forward, small forward, you want guys that can do a bit of everything. That's where Porter and Morris come in. And then Gortat, probably not quite the, the rim protector you would like as a centre, but certainly very good in the pick and roll, and that's where they, how they use him. Him and Wall, it's almost undefendable when they're on, uh, them two in the pick and roll. Their bench is not not what it should be, um, and that's really the, the weakness that I think they need to address if they're going to go further. I mean, when you're sitting there talking about Yarn Mahimi is going to be the answer for us on the bench, um, I think I wonder what the question is because... You know that's that to me is a glaring weakness for them if they want to take that next step and uh, you know and win not just one playoff series but two three playoff series well, and try and catapult into the finals. The question is, hey, who's that guy? That's the only answer. That's the only question to that's Ian Mahimi. That's the only question. Who's that? <laughs> Who took my sandwich? That might. That's the other question. Honestly. Ooh. They are a five-man team, right? I think we talked about this last week, and it's no secret. You know, Turd Burke, he doesn't play. Ubre, Ubre is lost. That kid hasn't found. No. He hasn't found anything. He's kind of my. That's why I. I'm going to keep. He he's like Brandon Ingram East. He he and Ingram look like the same player to me. Um, they can't find one thing. Give me one NBA thing, you do well, and he doesn't have it. Um, Jay Smith, which probably stands for Jason, but it could be John. It could be Javier, for, <laughs> for all that we know. Jay Smith is probably their best bench player. <laughs> he, he is, actually, and that is that is about as sad as it I mean, He's just a classic locker room guy, Jason Smith. I think this might be fourth or fourth or fifth team. Uh, he just comes on and gives him solid minutes but you know he's he's not he's not winning you any playoff games off the bench when you have a bad (laughs) (laughs) i've had so many jokes about jason i'm making myself laugh (laughs) Uh, he killed the pot he killed miles Plumley. that's how Plumley got so i love jason smith he abused Plumley early in the season i go who the is that well? Occasionally he does come on. He does have some post moves, but it, when he's playing a good defender, he just gets because he's too short. So even though he pull off a good move, they, they'll just just treat him with absolute contempt. But uh, maybe Miles was was probably the right sort of centre of him to try out some of those moves on. Uh, anyway, so Jason, yeah, when Jason Smith leads your bench unit, and I dot Mahinmi is. <laughs> is going to be your saver. They're in trouble. So uh, if they have one of those seasons, right, where everything just falls right and no one gets hurt for, for even 10 games, you don't want to play them in the playoffs. You don't because they'll play them 40 minutes a night and they're not afraid to. 
Well, Most I people think have shown. Uh, sorry, to interrupt you, but I think, I think they've right. shown where where they they're headed as a team. And then uh, I, this is what I was really interested in thinking about this week because before this, like the end of last season, Kevin Durant goes around meets all the different teams, and everyone expected he was going to meet with Washington. The story's been around for a few years. He may go home. There was nothing official to it, but Washington did uh, create some cap room. They thought they were going to make a run at him. And then he didn't even meet with them. And everyone went, well, Washington weren't even in the conversation. But I wonder how true that was because he said himself, I, I would, he would not have gone to the Warriors if they won the title. Now, that to me is really weird. I don't understand that, for starters. But second of all, if they win the title this year and win it easily, and I think they will win it easily, does he look around at the end of this season? Because where's the where's the challenge? I mean, surely there must be some competitive instinct in these guys to want to take a challenge on. And is it a challenge for Kevin Durant to say, I'm going to go back to the Warriors and I'm going to try and win it again and then maybe win two or three in a row? Uh, is that something that appeals to him as a challenge? Or does he say, you know what, I could go to the Washington, go home, go, and this is a nice team now, if if you put him in that starting five and move Markeith Morris to the bench, pick up another bench piece, now you've got a team that can certainly contend in the East, might even be favourites in the East. You can take LeBron's title in the East, go through it, maybe not the Warriors would still be one of the favourite teams, maybe knock the Warriors off in the finals. But I just I guess from a sports psychology point of view, where is Kevin Durant's head going to be at at the end of this season? Because I look at him, he doesn't look like a guy that's enjoying his basketball to me. He's just, he's on a mission this year. He wants that He wants that title. And I, and I get it. He's been close a few times. He now wants, he want, wanted to go to the Warriors and get it. But is it in some ways, and obviously we're not elite sportsmen, so we can't sort of put ourselves in their mindset, but is it in some ways like trying to climb Everest, but, you know, getting on the chopper and being put 100 metres from the peak, and then climbing to the peak, and do you, when you do that, do you think, well, right, next time I want to start at the bottom and really build it with my own team? I mean, what do you think his mindset will be? And do you think maybe there's a chance the Wizards uh, or another team come into the mix at the end of this year, assuming they win and win easily? So Carmelo went home, and LeBron went home, and D Wade went home, right? So I. I guess I see you, see, you do see signs where there's, I guess, some players at that sort of level, you know, want to have some of the, I guess, the comforts in life and surrounded by, I guess, surrounded by family in particular. So I see that. And I don't know, I don't know Katie's particular circumstance with his family and friends back in, back in Maryland stroke DC. But didn't we just spend, just from a wizard's perspective, right? Who, of course, who wouldn't want, who wouldn't want Durant, but didn't we just both violently agree they've got a perfect starting five? So what, wh- who goes to the bench? Markeith? Markeith Morris goes to the bench. Yeah? I think you put Markeith on the bench, he loads the bench unit, pick up another bench player, then you've got seven guys. Um, you can, you know, who, who knows who the eighth guy might be. I mean, they still probably need other players around. But, I mean, Kevin Durant's going to make any team better. There's no question about that. It's just well, of course, yeah. What's what's their fit? And, I mean, you know, 
even with that starting five as good as it is, they're going to need massive improvements on their bench to be a proper contender. I'd have to go look at the salary cap because that's the next place I go, right? Because, well, number one, we know KD would be leaving a ton of money on the table if he left Golden State. That's a that's a that's fact. How, that's, that's how much? The, that's the big question because with the CBA now, it's fallen exactly the right time for the Warriors. Um, it's just in, in many ways, it's a fluke in, in just in that sense. Yeah, that but I could see him if he wants to go home. If 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 he wants to go home, I'd have to still look at the salary cap because he's, he's going to be on a structured like a. Like, like a Greg Monroe deal, which is a three-year with a two-year opt-out, probably something like that, right? So he can get paid again at age 30 if he wants to at the end of it. So it's – and what's that, three-year, 100 mil, right, something? He's going to get 30 million a year. And so I have to look at what what Wall's earning. Beal's on a near-max deal, isn't he? Keefe is on on a deal. So I'd have to look at the cap to say – I do love the idea of you answered the question. I do love the idea of Markeith coming off the bench and being the facilitator. See, he was much more of a facilitator in Phoenix. Um, and I think he can play a huge role. He's at 20 points a game the last 10 games. So he can score. Keith can score when he's motivated. So on paper, I love the fit. I just, I'd have to really look at cap stuff, Daz, because that's where I start to kind of go. What? Would they be better off actually building themselves a proper bench? Do you know what I mean? With a bunch of, you know, seven to ten million guys, you have a proper second second unit, so you have a practices are better and continuity is better and rotations are easier. And so I, I go. I think it's it's probably pie in the sky stuff, but I just I got thinking about the Warriors and I just thought as competitors, these guys, do they really want to be, you know, because they've if they go through the plus and win as easy as I think they probably will, how does Steve Kerr get them to want to come back and, and continue the to sort of go back and do the same thing again? And is is the hunger going to be there, or will they look around? Will Steph Curry look at Charlotte or something like that? Um, obviously, the big the big factor though is the way the CBA has changed. Staying with your team, you can make so much more money now. So unless you can structure the deal in a certain way in your new team, um, it's going to be a very hard decision for these guys to make just from a financial point of view uh, to walk away from that. Um, and maybe winning probably never gets boring either, I suppose. So from their point of view, they probably don't really care too much about how easy or hard it is. And, uh, but I guess the other point is, does Kevin Durant want to look back and say, that he was one of the greatest players ever and, and look at his individual legacy? Or is he happy to play the next four or five years and be one of the greatest teams ever? Maybe this could be, end up being the greatest team ever. Um, you know, how much do these guys care about their individual legacies? And I think it's a lot more than, than someone let on. It certainly is for LeBron, for example. So I think that's going to be an interesting dynamic to see how that plays out. Does that start getting into these guys' heads and say, well, look, what's more important, being part of this great team, this champion team, or do I want people to look back at me and say that was my team and I took a team as, as the number one player uh, to the title? Maybe we're overthinking it. Well, I think, I think we'll know in four months. I think it'll be pretty clear because we think – I took KD at his word when he said why the reason he left is he just needed to change. 
he just wanted a different life experience and it so happened perfect perfect i see i actually did right i i i I took it as a small he's in a small town you know russ he knew russ was the guy perhaps outside of okc we didn't appreciate that okc is russ's team and and russ you know, he's got the girlfriend and the stable life, and he's grounded in the community, and he's the he's the backbone of of OKC. KD might have been the star and the MVP, but the backbone was was Russ. And and what KD said was, right, I I need to experience something different. Um, I I just took him at his word. Different city, different culture, different team, different style. He just needed something different. It so happened that the perfect storm miracle that Steph Curry is still on his ridiculous contract that they can afford him. Right. So that in under no conditions, right. Steph Curry is on a ridiculous contract and the salary cap spikes like crazy. If those two things don't happen, there's no way he goes, no matter who wins the title, there's no way he goes to the Warriors. They can't afford it. Oh, of course, because right. Curry's, Curry's ankle injuries was the best thing that ever happened. The Golden State. Best thing that ever happened. Sign him to that ridiculous contract. That's right, um, and that sort of did lead to that. But I, I never believed that for a second. I think he wants a title. He thinks I don't want to be another guy that plays and is one of the great players. And we always, but he never won a title. And I just think he, he just questioned: Do am, are we going to be able to climb that mountain again? Because everything went right for them last year in terms of injuries and fit and health and things like that, and they still couldn't get over the hump. So imagine the Warriors are capped out. Where does he go? What's he do? Uh, well, he was, he was very classic out of the Celtics, I was told, I, I read. Uh, obviously, the Spurs would have been, uh, and I wouldn't be criticising him if he had gone to the Spurs. Yeah, yeah. I can assure you of that. But look, maybe he looks at the Spurs as well a bit more classy. Maybe he just stays. Uh, I think the chance are he probably stays if, if the Warriors aren't in the conversation. I don't even know if he takes meetings if the Warriors aren't in the conversation, to be honest. Um, I just sort of think he saw an opportunity said this is going to be an historically great team it'll be great to be a part of um but whether that's whether he wants to continue to do that i'm just not something's in my mind just not convinced that he's just going to pony up and say i'm back again next year i'm just just watch this space i guess is what i'm what i'm saying yeah i i i think it's going to be a lot clearer than it was to us last year yeah. So whatever the result is, I think it's going to be very clear. Oh, I think he'll if he does I, anything, it'll come down to one or two teams. I don't think he's going to go and meet with. Yeah, no, he's not. Not again. Um, yeah. So it'll be well, something can, similar when LeBron went to the Cavs. Really, can we agree he's not going back to Oklahoma? No, I wouldn't agree with that. You think he'd go back? I think he could go back. I, I think it's a long, long, long shot, but I wouldn't completely rule it out. I wouldn't completely rule it out. Yeah, so, that that may be too close to the LeBron trajectory, though, for him. I think it's perhaps all the things that none of us will ever know is just the what's the the power of the relationships he has, the actual relationship with Russ, and the actual relationship that he and Scotty Brooks have. I think those are two pretty important variables that those of us who aren't mm. inside the locker room can't actually. We don't really know. That's what I think. So, but you're, you're fair point. I, I think um, chasing a ring, of course, that's what he was doing. I just, I, I think it was more. My comment was 
for his justification for leaving Oklahoma City. I actually believed him when he said it. I just need to change. I'm getting older. I just need to experience something different. I think that was also true as he was chasing rings. And um, yeah, I'd love to see him on Washington. I'd love to see some of the the power shifting to the East, to be honest, um, just for a bit of NBA balance as well. Mm. But um, yeah, I guess we'll see. So we'll have to leave part one there, but feel free to download part two where we break down the Minnesota Timberwolves and Milwaukee Bucks and where they go from here. Thank you.